Welcome to Me and the Geek. I'm me, Joel Sharpton. You can follow me on Twitter at The Rogues Life or visit my website, joelsharpton.com. Generally, we bring you a weekly geekly conversation with a different geek. This week, it's something special. Uh, and it's, we've been saying that a lot lately around here, but this week it really is. Last Thursday night uh, in Stone Theater on the campus of Louisiana Tech University, I uh, was part of the Summer Series event number two. Now, this is actually something that I've done uh, already uh, once earlier this summer. We did Summer Series one where I did a live version of uh, my uh, episode about uh, my Nana uh, that you heard several weeks ago. Uh, We did a, a shortened live version of that. What uh, we did in the second episode of the summer series at uh, Louisiana. Welcome on board, ladies and gentlemen. Could the passenger in carriage five please unplug your extension lead and stop charging your phone, electric toothbrush, handheld hoover, and power drill on the table? Thank you. Like getting your money's worth? Enjoy the delicious mayo chicken. Just 99p from the McDonald's saver menu. <laughs> Served after 10:30 a.m. Except in selected restaurants, which will serve this from 11 a.m. Price and participation may vary. Louisiana Tech, though, is the other way around. Uh, We did the event live last Thursday night. I interviewed Mark Gwynn, the director of the School of Performing Arts, who has been a a guest on this podcast before talking about lighting. This time we're going to talk about staged movement and uh, staged violence in particular in his life and career in stage combat. This was a really fun event, and we're going to do more throughout the summer. If you enjoyed the episode, and I hope you do, I'd love to hear your feedback. You can email me, me and the geek at teamprocreate.com. You can tweet at us, me and the geek, or find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash me and the geek. And afterwards, I'll tell you about some upcoming events that we're going to be doing, especially if you're in and around North Louisiana. We'd love to have you live. Uh, We've got one coming up next week. That's June 16th, so next Thursday. Uh, You can come and join us for another live event from me and the geek. Right now, let's get straight to the episode. This is Mark Gwynn, the director of the School of Performing Arts at Louisiana Tech University on me and the geek. If you were here last week, I said, uh, or not last week, if you were here at the last uh, summer series event, first summer series event, I said at the beginning of my piece about my grandmother, that if you ask me what I am, I'll say I'm a podcaster. And this is a podcast. Um, Those of you that have never heard of one or have never listened to one, you're on one right now. So yay, look at you being technologically adept. Me and the Geek is a weekly conversation with a different geek. And to me, a geek is anyone that's passionate about a hobby, uh, their industry, their art form, uh, or some other topic. I've talked to people about Dungeons and Dragons. I've talked to people about Marvel movies and comic books. Uh, I've talked to people about knitting. I've talked to this gentleman about lighting the first time, and I'm sure all of you have heard episode six of Me and the Geek. You can find it at meandthegeekpod.com, by the way. I'll give you that link on on a, a piece of paper later if you'd like it. But episode six of Me and the Geek, I interviewed Mark, and he and I discussed his start in lighting. Uh, And those of you that listened to that, uh, you heard about how uh, he started studying biology. You were going to be a wildlife conservationist on the the, uh, rivers of Tennessee. And there was a pretty girl. The combination of an art project that he needed to find good light for and a pretty girl that he wanted to help with her dance project. And those two things led him into the world of lighting design. He ends up writing fancy wiggly lights uh, on top of the stage for Madonna and for uh, Neil Diamond and for Bob Dylan. Or not lighting Bob Dylan, I should say. 
It's a very good story. We talked about the creation of shadow in that episode, and Mark's got a ton of stories that he can tell about lighting. But what I wanted to talk about tonight, the first topic anyway, was the entry into the world of stage movement. You grow up in Tennessee, you're an active kid, you talked about being an outdoorsman, uh, you know, you, you, that was your life growing up. Was martial arts a first interest, or did stage combat and, and stage violence come first, and then martial arts was an outgrowth of that? Hey, this is nerve-wracking. <laughs> the first time we did this, I got to do it on the phone. So this is... This is... Yeah, we're both in little black boxes. It is a different animal being in front it of is. an audience. It is. Um, Northwest Tennessee. Paris, Tennessee is uh, quite similar. Yes, there's nice ice-cold water there. I'm going to drink while you talk, and then you can drink while I talk. Thank you. Um, uh, just like Ruston, except it's uh, not a college town. It was 30 miles from the nearest college town. Um, so I grew up, uh, I grew up very involved in sports, um, and had some wonderful experiences because I was the smallest guy. I was always the smallest guy. Um, I played football through junior high because it was football and baseball. I played baseball. I was an all-star baseball player. Um, and then when we got to the high school, the coaches pulled me aside and said, you know, Mark, just don't think you're big enough and we're worried about your safety on the field. I thought about becoming a trainer, but I became an athletic trainer. Um, and that year they brought in a coach from uh, New Jersey, Coach Bona. Um, and Coach Bona started a wrestling program, and he sought me out um, to be his 98-pound uh, class wrestler. Because in the 10th grade, I weighed 98 pounds and didn't have a problem making weight. So it was sports. Um, I tried to get involved in the martial arts, but my dad was uh, a Navy man, uh, academy man, um, and he never admitted it, but we later found out that he was a pretty serious judo player, and he was also um, um, a gymnast, and he worked on the rings back when the rings were the flying rings, not just the stationary rings. So it was always part of growing up, this working out and running amok. When I was six, we moved into town because I was diagnosed with asthma, and we moved off the farm into central heat and air, um, and we got rid of the TV, and so there was no television. I mean, it wasn't TV back in 66, really. Um, but we got rid of the TV and built a library, and so we were out doing things all the time, out on the bike, running amok, doing this, that, the other. I did develop an interest in martial arts because at some point, as kids, we all find martial arts movies. They want to go, whoa! Yeah, you want to beat somebody up. Yes. Um, and uh, went to you know the local schools. And back then, I don't even remember. It wasn't Shotokan. It wasn't Taekwondo. Taekwondo had swept across the nation at that, at that point. And everywhere we went, Dad would go, that's not real, buddy. Come on. We're not paying for that. Um, and... Uh, that's what it was, but uh, grew up on the rivers. We were on the river every weekend, swimming, running amok. Um, and then uh, got to college. Um, and it was in college in pursuit of wildlife biology um, that I ended up looking for lights, the light, a sculptural project, ended up in the theater. The technical director said, hey, I'll let you borrow these lights. 
if you come work on a project, and it was all downhill from there. But that led me to um, the outdoor drama Blue Jacket. And, and that's where stage combat specifically started for you, was it Blue Jacket? That's where I was standing on stage building a replica of Fort Boonesboro. Um, and Jim Winburn, who is who I now know and is a personal friend, I don't know if he's a personal he's a friend, <laughs> <laughs> he's still alive, um, for the United Stuntmen Association, um, was working on the Siege of Boonesboro. And you've been to Blue Jacket. You know that that's... Yeah, for, for, for those that don't know, Blue Jacket is, is no longer uh, existent, but it was an outdoor drama, a live uh, play performance throughout the summer. It would run every night in Southern Ohio. And the idea was it's a tale of settlers and Native Americans, uh, as most of them were. There were outdoor dramas at the time that were sprinkled all over the country. It's not... It's sort of a dying art form we've talked about. But, it is. Uh, but that, that was... That was, it's not a dying, it's not a dying it's, art form, but it, it, it shrunk and It's truly an American, an American art form. And, and like jazz and rock and roll. It yes. is a very uniquely American thing. But it's got those wonderful standards in, in theater and outdoor drama. Spectacle, large, uh, large musical score. And this one uh, was originally by Frank Lewin. But then when I started directing the show, we brought in Michael Raspberry. To change the score, but it was soaring musical score, um, heroic characters, lots of flash and spectacle. And this show, I was standing in the center of the stage. And this show, that very first year, we had over 100 actors, 20 to 30 horses, over 100 replica muzzle loading rifles, three one pound cannons, six mortars that were all in the fort, concussion orders, like a gun, makes a big sound, in the fort, um, and flaming arrows, and a high fall um, in the show. And I'm standing on stage looking at this, watching this guy do all this, going, wow, you can make money doing this? <laughs> <laughs> I can do this. And, and that's exactly where it started. Uh, it started watching it happen. You know, I had specific bits that summer. I was a guy that was blocked to stand inside the, the walls of Fort Boonesboro. And they had the big flaming arrow attack. And on the seventh flaming arrow, it'd come over the wall and drop in. And once it came in, they'd set off the powder magazine. And it was a six concussion mortars. And it'd be, go dead body! And I'd have these dead bodies. And I'd pitch these dead bodies. <laughs> it was the craziest thing. And they were... Terrible dead bodies. It was a pillow with a couple of legs and a stock on the head. And those those horrible polyester wigs. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And you know, during the course of the summer that first year, we pitched it over, pitched it over, and one of the styrofoam heads fell out and rolled out. (laughs) So when all the horses came running by, and horses, I don't know if you're horse people, but horses are scared of anything. They come right up and be like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> it was bad. But that was the very beginning. That was where um, it started. And then the very next year, um, I came back. Um, this is this is the 80, 82, 83? 82, 82, and then 83. I came back the very next year. And because it was such a, it's just such a history of most of the outdoor dramas, just and I don't mean to whoever hears this insult the Institute of Outdoor Drama or management in outdoor drama, but they always seem to 
ended up with such bad management in front of house. And, and it's a spectacle show. And they didn't have a fight director. They didn't, they couldn't, I don't know what it was. But the guy, uh, the production stage manager, came to one of the stage managers, Dave Sollers, who is a very dear friend of mine, who is an acupuncturist working in um, the Boston area, and who is a very serious martial artist, um, who introduced me to Tai Chi, actually, which I continue to practice and play. Um, they asked him to choreograph the fights, who had never done anything. He was like, well, and he was always this, I'll give it a try. <laughs> and off he go to, to choreograph the fights and he put them together and it was, uh, it was, it was it, I learned a whole lot that summer about uh, street accord and about supporting the effort that's going on. Um, he did the best he could under the circumstances with absolutely no vocabulary. But then the very next year, I ended up at the legend of Daniel Boone. And that summer, they brought in David Leong who is a fight master of the Society of American Fight Directors, and I am a member of the Society of American Fight Directors, and my affiliation with the organization started that summer. In 83. Uh, uh, 84. 84. It would have been the year. Um, and his uh, fight captain and assistant is was Drew Frazier, who has become a lifelong mentor and a very dear friend. And that was the summer that I began to learn technique and process learn what it was what it was to train what it was to think choreographically about violence in the show um, and how to first and foremost safely put together spectacle because the thing about outdoor drama and, and the theaters that I was associated with for the majority of my formative years is that it was tough work we went on, if you've been to the outdoor drama, the show doesn't stop. It's like football. It does not stop. If there's lightning, yes. If there, it was in the policy when I when I became production station manager, do not stop the show unless there is visible boat lightning or the audience is getting up and leaving. And the audience is you know, <laughs> And sometimes you do it even when there's no, I, I mean, we, I was there two summers in the early 2000s, and both summers we played at least once for a house that was smaller than the cast on stage. And let me tell you something. You want to be demoralized, my friends. You try to get in a pair of uh, uh, you know, uh, leather leggings and ride a horse in the rain for about four people, you know, and, you, and you're thinking about the paycheck, and the paycheck does not cover uh, whatever little expenditures that you wanted to make on the weekend. Anyway. That's the life of outdoor drama. It's so glamorous. It reads about a strength of spirit. It does. It does read read spirit. Andy Griffin was an alumni of the outdoor drama. Sir. Really? Yeah, man. So, so in '84, yep. you hook up with the Society of American Fight Directors. I took my first skills performance test that summer with Michael Donahue as my partner, who went on to become my brother-in-law and now ex-brother. And the, the process of, of training in stage combat for, for people in the audience that don't know, the way that this works is you, you take a certain amount of hours of instruction uh, and, and practice. You rehearse with uh, a recognized, certified is the word, certified teacher. Yep. And you take a certain amount of hours of training, and at the end of that, you have to actually choreograph and then act out, perform a scene. Not just the fight itself, but dialogue as well and lead into the fight. That's the whole point, right? We're doing this for the stage. So it's about vocalizations. It's about the whole nine yards as well as technique and not killing each other with these fake weapons. 
uh, or, or dull weapons, I should say. They're not bad. They're swords. They're just not sharp. So uh, you trained and, and uh, passed your test on three weapons that first year? Yep. Regular okay. dagger, broadsword, and quarterstaff. And then the progression uh, goes that there are a total of eight weapon forms to train yeah, in? There, there, there currently are eight and nine if you count the firearm certification. Back then, I believe it was just six. It's reaching way back. Reaching way back. And you add, you, you have to amass so, a recognition in all of those weapons first. Yep. So it's, it's, it's very much akin to the martial arts or any sort of progressive training. It is advanced actor training, and its ultimate purpose, purpose, it purpose? <laughs> 42. Um, that was the number of staples. We'll get um, it's coming. Ultimate purpose is to build the aesthetic, to grow the aesthetic beyond. Um, and that's, that I didn't know at the time. That, at the time, it was about, I could be a pirate. <laughs> and sling some steel um, and have a wonderful jolly adventure doing it. Um, so it was, I believe it was just six weapons back then. It was uh, fisticuffs, it was fisticuffs, rapier and dagger, um, fisticuffs, rapier and dagger, broadsword, uh, quarterstaff. Well, what am I forgetting? Sword and shield. Uh, sword and shield came later. It came much later. Nine. Nine came much later. Small sword, which was court sword. Um, and those, those morphed into small sword, we adopted knife within the past 10 to 15 years, and then sword and shield came in somewhere. It was a total shift for you, career-wise and, and, and art form-wise. You know, you had been in the lighting world at that time already close to 10 years, five, six, seven, 10 years. You'd been yeah. doing it professionally some. Well, that was alongside, those tracks were rolling. We were, we were running at the same time. That was because I had just graduated college, um, and I had made the shift in college to theater, as we had talked about earlier, um, and was coming out as a lighting designer. That was that was the goal and purpose. And I was building a career in the outdoor drama world. Um, I was building a career in the outdoor drama world as a technical director, um, as a technical director and, and working my way into lighting design. I was building it through tech, and at the same time, training on the artistic side. But what I was doing was mentoring myself to those that were creating the art. Mm. Um, I went where I knew the creative artists were. I worked with this fellow by the name of Charlie Otti, um, who is a brilliant director. Um, and, and, of course, David Leong and Drew Frazier, uh, these Bike masters in the Society of American Bike Directors um, uh, worked as their bike captains, worked as their assistant choreographers over the next decade or so, building knowledge of the art and craft and honing my 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 training skills and continuing to train, growing in Tai Chi, taking martial arts courses where I could. I was training in Shotokan Karate in Memphis at that time finding whatever Tai Chi training I could. Uh, when we finally made the move here to Ruston, I originally worked with this gentleman by the name of Lynn Alford in Simsboro. We used to go out, travel to his house twice a week, and we'd move all the furniture out of the living room, and there was four or five guys, and we'd do Aikido classes in the living room. Until we get to the end of class, class would always end with Randori, which is essentially free-form fighting. 
where you start with the low rank and everybody attacks the low rank. You go through the class, you have to fight them, and then the next rank, the next rank, until we get up to your fighting the teacher of the class who's throwing you all over the room. And then the wife comes out of the kitchen and says, that's enough, boys. Put the furniture back where it belongs. Um, and met Jean Dine, um, who was on the faculty here for many, many years and trained in Tai Chi with him. Um, and at the same time, was continuing to work up through the organization. The Society of American Fight Directors, as you mentioned previously, um, has those weapons, and you accrue so many weapons. Uh, when you get three weapons, you can apply for a rank in the organization as an actor combatant. Um, after so many years in the organization and training and professional credits, you could go to teacher certification school, become a certified teacher in the organization. And after so many years working in the organization, and it's changed from five to ten to 10 years in the organization now, with 75 professional performance, 75 professional credits, you could apply to become a fight master. And, and you have ascended all the way to the top of that rank, for those that don't know, by the way. You are a fight master in the Society of American Fighters. It is true. And we have one of the most widely known programs of training in the United States. Everybody knows about it's, it. It's like everybody. It's like the best kept secret in North Louisiana, though. Like, yeah. I, it's it is such a uh, it's a gem for the university, and yet one that is not nearly as often highlighted as it should be. We are the the stage combat workshop and the stage combat program at Louisiana Tech University are widely known and respected as one of the best programs and the oldest regional workshop in the United States. Uh, the stage combat workshop. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yes. We are the granddaddy. Granddaddy of them all. Is it more appealing to you than lighting? Stage violence, the choreography, and fight direction? If you had to choose one or the other, which do you think you would choose? Uh, I can't. I can't. The, the thing that appeals to me the most about theater is its ephemeral quality. Uh, I, I enjoy the, the act of creation, the envision. And you know, that all comes, it all comes from nature. It's like today, driving down the road, pull up at a stop sign, and I'm sitting there, and the trees are waving in the wind, and I'm just it's like, wow, it's so beautiful. Look at the movement. Look at the shadow that's being created. Look at what's happening. And then, and then I come here and in my own weak ninja style, <laughs> you know, try to recreate those things, create these, you know, wonderful little lighting cues at, at the beginning because there's, there's that, that sense of magic, that, that sense of magic, that it's there and it's gone. And I think that it is the, the perfect reflection of this life, of this existence. Um, and I enjoy that. I really do enjoy it. What is your favorite scene of stage violence? All of them, man. You know, <laughs> when you first said that, do you, do you guys know the movie Old Guy? Yes, Old Boy. Old Boy. Old Boy. Old boy. Uh, so bad. Yeah. So the, the the basic plot of this story is that a man is locked up for no known reason. He has no clue of why he's been put in this. Uh, uh, Korean revenge. Yes, 
He's locked up. He breaks free after years and years in, in isolation. In isolation. And again, he has no idea why or who these people that did that do them to us. And the rest of the film is the process of his revenge. Exactly. exactly. His, his revenge and his discovery of the truth. If you ever need to see it back, if you ever need to see a movie that at the end of the movie will make you go, Oh! That's what I hate with! Uh, you should watch this. But it has a wonderful... Um, it's a really horrific fight scene down 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 the hallway. That Scaramouche, um, Stuart Stuart Granger. Oh my gosh! You know, there's, there's so many that we, when you would say that there's there's this flood of images. The the cabman that, that we did over there, the, the standing on stage right there against that scene in March with the. Brianna Bass, Brianna Bass, Nat, uh, Natalie Weaver, and Jocelyn Octavets um, attacking me right in the middle of it, and I had this little cane as uh, fork bra, as uh, yes. crazy fork bra, right? And that night, in the middle of it, it's a cane, and I'm fighting with the cane, and it's a push button adjustable cane. And in the middle of that night, she hit the button, and I went boom, and the cane fell apart. <laughs> I didn't know fight. That and the, you know, the, there's, there's not. It's just, it, it becomes a, a flood of images, and the more we start talking about it, you know. I finally saw John Wick last night, and there's, people talked about that, you know, the new gun food. Gun. Woo! Have you seen, um... I tell you, I tell you the one thing that, that, that is important, that, that I do um, really think about, and the reason that I like that I mentioned uh, Old Boy, you mentioned that. Scaramouche, uh, because for the longest time, oh, and the Tony Ja, right? The Tony Ja, um, the second Tony Ja movie, where uh, they had the longest unedited. The that's the raid, the, right? No, not the raid. It's oh. the Tony, the, a different Tony Ja. The uh, on on bot two. It's on yes. two. Um, because I love where the, I, I don't. I, I love the theater because the theater exists. We're we're here and it exists in real time. And, we share this this moment. Um, in film, you've got the luxury of cutting and going back and cutting and going back, uh, cutting and going back. Um, and that's the thing that most action film cinematographers explore with point of view. And they do cut, chop, cut, chop, cut, chop. So the story, the dramatic art, that which we love about the theater so much, it's 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 simply not there. Uh, or they're attempting to explore it through different means. I don't want to say it's not there in less in form, but what I appreciate is that storytelling ability where you have two actors that are attempting to tell a, a, a dramatic arc. Because when it gets to conflict, there's a specific story that needs to be told. Um, you have two actors that have gone beyond dialogue and they're engaged in physical communication and attempting to tell a physical story. And so those instances where it comes crystal clear are those that pop in if the opportunity presented itself here or, or elsewhere, do you have a film project in your head? Do you have the desire, the wish to do something on film? No, but I have lots of theater. Got lots of theater waiting to have lots. All right. I don't know the vocabulary. I mean, I do. I've been involved in a cut. I don't. I, let's just be. I don't. I don't know the vocabulary at all. This, I got. So let's, let's talk about 
you're continuing this. Let's talk about where you are right now in your career and in your life. And, and that starts, let's go to 2005. We're going to get to the stitches now. <laughs> All right, so it's winter quarter of 2005, and you are headed to the Winter Wonderland Workshop in Chicago. This is a stage combat workshop again. Yes. You're there with a group of students. It, it is that. It is. It has grown into all those cats used to come down here and then realize what we had. And now the Winter Wonderland in Chicago has become the largest regional workshop in the United States because it costs so much to get to here. They just ripped off your idea. You just can't. You can't get there from here. And it's one of the reasons that we struggle to bring in uh, guest artists because of their affairs. Yes. And I was going to the Winter Wonderland. You know why? going to the Winter Wonderland. The College of Fightmasters had summoned me to interview me for the position of Fightmaster. So not only was I going to teach, but I was going to be interviewed to see if I if I had the steel. So before we get to the incident itself and, and the, the cause of your stitches, let's talk about that for a minute. Because to me, and I know for lots of your students, there was the perception that the, the, the masterhood, the delivery of your title of master, took too damn long. Did you ever feel that way? Or was it a matter of there were yeah. certain things that were required of you as a master that you yeah. weren't ready or wanted to do? Truth be known, I am a rabble rouser. I was around when we finally, when Drew Frazier and Colleen Kelly finally brought policy and procedure to uh, the Society of American Fight Directors. In the policy and procedure, it states that you, you could make it to fight master by being tapped in, and it's it's uh, that's a, a long and long story. Um, but there was a process, and it, it was always like um, uh, what's his name Tecumseh at the outdoor drama talking to William Henry Harrison. Are you going to be? a woman and lift her skirts and run away one more time. That the perception was that the College of Flight Masters was always changing the rules and moving it and moving it and moving it so that no one could obtain the rank of Flight Master. In fact, that's what was happening. Um, and when I came on board, I was jumping to Flight Master from Certified Teacher and not going through the newly established position of Flight Director, even though I was a working Flight Director. And had been working as a fight director for well over a decade, and so there was—I don't know what happened in the college, but there was lots of discussion about me not following the proper procedures and leaving. I am the only certified teacher that has gone from certified teacher to fight master. So, so, but in two thousand five, whoever was dragging their feet had decided it was time to at least talk to. Yes. Okay. So you're there. So we're there. You're there to get your master on. <laughs> and, and, and to, to poorly quote Joe Cocker, you, you weren't feeling too good yourself. Actually, no, you know, the other part of this, it was February 2nd. Mm -hmm. Oh, Grandma's Day. My anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> well, you shave your mustache and your okay. That's it. My anniversary. And we had just come out from dinner. We're walking on the street back to the meeting, back to the big organizational meeting. And as I was walking down the street, I heard a pop. Just like, uh, just like you know, when, when a joint pops out 
vertebrae slips or the tendon in your arm pops, it's an internal pop, there's an internal pop. Uh, I just uh, suffered a bit of vertigo and my vision blurred and I started hyperventilating. I didn't know where I was. And then the, the one thing in my life that, that makes me believe in miracles occurred. Jake Wynn put his hand on my chest, right here with my heart. He said, Dad, what are you doing? Just calm down. And at that very moment, I went, ooh. And I saw Jake. I was like, I don't know. I think I just pulled something. He says, it's okay. What are you doing? I don't know. He said, come on. you got to go to the meeting. And we went to the meeting. Um, walked to the meeting, and within an hour, uh, I started throwing up. I got up and went and taught a balls and rolls class the next day and went and was assigned to be a teaching assistant at a gun at a firearm safety class but the gunshots were so, they, they hurt so bad and I was still sick and nauseous, nauseous. Um, uh, they put me in another class and everybody was like yeah you need to go to the doctor you go like uh, I'm a Gwen I'm a dummy and I wouldn't do I wouldn't do any of that. Went home that night, made some soup, went to bed, got up and taught the next day. Good God, man. Um, and then finally had... Uh, Neil Massey's girlfriend at the time, wife now. Rachel. Rachel. Rachel finally convinced me. She said, look, this is it. You move beyond. It's wrong with I care. There's something wrong. Because at that point, um, I was developing numbness in my, in my legs. And the doc later told me, because what happened was I had a subarachnoid hemorrhage, and so I had bleeding in the dura matter in the right frontal lobe, um, and it didn't appear anywhere, but was running into the spinal cord. And when I finally got to the hospital um, and told them what was going on, they ran me through the CT machine, and then things started happening. <laughs> it was kind of crazy, and these faces were appearing out of nowhere, this, that, and the other was going on. It was just crazy. I had a huge beard back then. Um, and there's all sorts of wonderful stories. Just on a sidebar, uh, I used to teach the technical theater class here, and one of the things that we do is we, we focus on knots because if you work in theater, you've got to know knots. And it, there's always these kids that don't pay attention to that. So we bring down a bat and then here, and I'll stand in front of the troublemakers in class and I go, okay, tie the knot. One try, and they don't get it, and I punch them. I probably shouldn't be saying this in front of them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, <clears throat> so I'm sitting there, uh, and this intern comes in, this young guy, and he's he's trying to trying to get into the arterial because they're having to do some sort of, you know, arterial, arterial pick so that they can monitor the blood pressure. And he's shaking, and I went, what are you doing? He goes, oh, I'm, I'm kind of new at this. I'm like, just relax. <laughs> it's going to be okay. I'm the one in trouble here. Just relax. <laughs> and so he messed around, and he finally got it. He got the sutures out, and he's working on tying a knot, and I'm watching it. And I said, oh, dude, if you were in my knot tying class, I'd punch you right now. <laughs> because that is not a surgeon's knot. <laughs> he, tied, he tied a granny knot and as you know a granny knot will come untied and I had continual problems with this so I went into surgery 
the next morning, so it was just a few hours. And the very next morning, I'm sitting in surgery, and the anesthesiologist comes in, and he's messing with that, and I'm laying on the table, and sitting there, and a little bit too chipper, and this guy's had a lot of caffeine, he's messing with a knot, and I said, you better be careful, the guy that tied that didn't know what he's doing. And he, was, he just looked at me, and went back at it, and the thing went, poop that went out, and it's true that when you get into the arterial supply, that it pumps because of it. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Being the guy I am, I said, way to go, rookie. <laughs> and that's the last thing I remember. <laughs> I heard a voice behind me, and he was like, okay, that's about enough of that. <laughs> and I was gone. So you were in the hospital in Chicago for... Almost a month, weren't you? No, I was in intensive care 13 days, woke up the next morning with 42 staples. You can still see the big old scar across there. And I have four plates, 16 screws in my head. So I do have screws in my head. (laughs) None of them are loose, though, that we're aware of. Um, Was in intensive care for 13 days, and then they moved me to another floor, and they moved me to another floor, and then the insurance ran out, and they put me in a wheelchair and pushed me out on the street, and the hospital was across the street, and they pushed me out on the street, and this was great. He was livid, and the guy said, no, I'm sorry, sir, but I have to have a wheelchair now. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) So they took the wheelchair and went back inside and left us right there on the street, and that walk across the corner and there and then riding up. So, how long was it until you felt like, yeah, I'm Mark again? That was in February, and uh, I was teaching classes for the board. And I don't know, the mind is a wonderful thing, and how we organize our thoughts and our existence. It amazes me each and every day. We were talking about this earlier, about uh, one of my faults being a true optimist. Well, I uh, I had a different, I've got a different perspective now. Um, and it's, it's, it's good, it's magnificent, it's wonderful. Every day, these moments, that which we create, that which is created, went somewhere else. I didn't answer your question. No, that, that, that was pretty good. How long did it take until you felt like, yeah, oh I don't know. You know, it was it, it was a year before my sense of smell came back. Uh, uh, I remember I was in the back, because I'd walk in the backyard and try to smell roses. I knew what roses smelled like. I knew I should be able to smell a rose. Um, but when they, when they went in and superseded the frontal lobe, lifted the frontal lobe, they said that one of the issues might be might affect the olfactory senses because they, they tore some of the nerves, and in fact they did. So I had the opportunity at, um, how old am I now, 50, 40, at, at 45, to rediscover food. It was huh. awesome, rediscovering food. And you know, on the sidebar, I used to pride myself in the, in, in the ability. My mom's a Kentucky girl, and I was raised sipping bourbon, and I could tell the difference in bourbons. Um, and I couldn't. And even now, it's it, I, I can't like I could. Not as distinct. Yeah. I used to do blind taste tests. Like, yeah, 
but rediscovering food was wonderful. Um, I trained. I trained incessantly to, to get the physical back. And then there's always that, you know, that question. It's like, switch. Was there a time where you thought, okay, well, I got 40-something staples in my head, et cetera, et cetera, enough with the fighty fighty now? No. Absolutely not. What I just started training in the new in new martial arts style this year. So. Did you, what did you add this year? Because I want to be a white belt, man. Uh, <laughs> the jiu-jitsu, the Gracie jiu-jitsu, the with the Gracie jiu-jitsu school now. It's um, kind of crazy. We've talked about, we started with lighting design, we've talked a lot about movement tonight. You know, I know a lot of your students, and I asked a bunch of them, as a matter of fact, we haven't been too long in a minute. I'm going to get a time check. Uh, but uh, we've got some rapid-fire questions we could get to from them through Facebook. Um, but one of them talked about when I said, hey, what would you like to talk to Gwen about? They asked, "Do you, ha do you ha are you aware of how far your teaching style has spread and, and the, the web of a legacy that you've left? Uh, Josh Shirley uh, put this to me. And he said, of course, lots of your students do something that you do a lot. He'll ask a question. He'll give you instruction. Hey, I need you to tie a surgeon's knot. Yes. And he follows it up with a question and yes. Did you hear me? Are you answering me? Are we on the same page? Um, lots of your students do that when they're doing fight teaching and fight choreography. Did I blah, 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 blah. Yes. And, and it's, a grand, it's, a, it's just like just like you say when we're playing, when we're fighting, you check in with your partner, right? Hey, are we still here? Are you watching me swing this sword and not yeah. hit you in the face? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Josh Shirley does it at Canes. If you eat at Raising Canes here, Josh Shirley is the managing partner of Raising Canes. That means he's effectively their version of a franchisee, sort of. And uh, he's trained all of the staff there. Not only does he train his staff with the, hey, you got to buff the stainless steel like this. Yes. His staff now, when they're training new people, he watched, he said, it's one of the, my points of pride. He says, when my managers are training somebody new, blah, 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 yes, and they wait for confirmation. He says, and so they're, and they don't even know Mark Gwynn, they've never heard the name Mark Gwynn, probably, and yet they've got a piece of your teaching style. What, what do you want your legacy to be? What do you want people to think of in 50 years, and 100 years, and 150 years when they say Mark Gwynn? Uh, yeah. He had a great laugh. <laughs> he had a great laugh. And was passionate about his art, I guess. I don't know. I haven't thought about that. There's time for other people to think of that? Enjoy, yeah. Enjoy doing <clears throat> How are we on time? What, what time is it? This is boring. I'm surprised you haven't left. <laughs> I'm gonna, Ken, do you, would you like me to go through a couple of rapid fire before we finish? Or do you, are you done with Mark? Okay. Here's some quick questions. Elvis or Salvador Dali? Only one can live. <laughs> Elvis will always live in my heart. Uh, Jay Mays says, uh, who inspired you growing up and how have they influenced you at who you are today? Oh, Someone from your childhood. You named a lot of great names in your career, but somebody from your childhood. Uh, who's... Uh, I, I, names, boy, at this point in this age, who, who is Chuck Norris? Chuck Norris. That's, you know what? That's where it started, because Grandma had the television set. 
Grandma had color TV. And if we were good, we got to go spend the night with Grandma. And when we spent the night with Grandma, they went to bed early. You wait for them to go to bed, you get up and you sneak down, you get right there by the TV, turn it on, turn it all the way down, and just sit right here. And I watched Chuck Norris and the PKA win his national title. I saw karate demonstrations by Bill Superfoot Wallace. And those guys were the guys who were like, Cat uh, Wiley asks, how did you end up with the name Rat? And for those of you that don't know, we call him Mark. We call him Mark Gwynn, Professor Mark, Professor Gwynn, uh, Dr. Gwynn, which he's not a doctor, but lots of people assume everybody at a, at a university must be. I got the initials, MD. There you go. <laughs> uh, but professionally, people call him Rat. Why do they call you Rat? Uh, because my college roommate freshman year, um, I, I worked on... I took a year off from high school um, and I worked on a carburetor assembly line for about eight months uh, at the Holly Carburetor plant in uh, Paris, Tennessee, um, and then went and worked on the river boats. Um, my mom had a buddy out of Bowman Green, Kentucky that had a riverboat company and worked with them uh, for a summer, uh, a full summer. And so when I got there, I had that great accent that you, you talked about. I remember, well, you ain't nothing but an old Tennessee River rat, and it's stuck. Been with you ever since. I don't know why. Uh, Andrew Ray, the recently married Andrew Ray, <laughs> A. Ray, he says, what is the best way to deal with rumelade sauce in your mustache while eating a po' boy? <laughs> well, when you get to be, <coughs> you, you just don't get the rumelade in your mustache to begin with. Uh, <laughs> what a rookie. He's always been a <laughs> Ron Brown Gray. Oh my gosh, Buddha. Ron Brown Gray. He says, was Olympic diving team ever a goal for you? And if not, why not? You know, I'm in the record books. I did not. I am. I am in the record books. I was a double letterman and uh, at my undergraduate. Uh, a four-year letterman in soccer um, and a two-year letterman on the swimming team where I was a diver, a springboard diver. I was a one meter and three meter springboard diver and I finished second in the NCAA. Oh gosh, I don't remember now. It was pretty pitiful, but it was second. Dan Davis. They gave us shot glasses. They gave us shot glasses. <laughs> it's the I'm strangest thing, right? I have kids that have been through the, the Ruston High School debate, the debate tournaments. You know what they give the debate kids? Beer mugs. <laughs> Here's your award. It's a beer mug. It's just a deal on the. I would, I would swipe them. I'd put them in the cabinet, Jake. But that's my dad. Yeah. Uh, Dan Davis, a friend of ours from Ohio. A brilliant chef. Uh, and Dan, the feel good man. Uh, chiropractor? You worked in the chiropractor's yes. office? Did I make that? Yeah. No. Dan says, Does Stan Tipton ever visit you in your dreams? We just talked about Stan. Stan was the. Stan was a, a, a Vietnam veteran that uh, came back to the war, shot up really bad. Um, but he loved the art. He grew up at Tecumseh and was a, a dancer at Tecumseh. Became a principal stage manager, and he was the guy that that sat at the helm of Blue Jacket um, until he passed away. Um, the answer is yes. 
lots of those folks from Blue Jacket come back in your dreams. I'm a bachelor, right? Yeah. They come back in mine. Yeah. I was only there two years. That's great. Uh, here's the last question, I promise. And I'm going to let you guys uh, go on to, to uh, much better performers than, uh, than us. Um, this comes from Richard Bennett. What color is Nile blue? <laughs> it's green! <laughs> <laughs> Nile blue is green! You hear that, Corey Cassio? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, that, that is a, a little bit of an internal joke. But if you look it up, Nile Blue is green. It's green. Uh, this has been uh, Mark D. Quinn, the uh, director of the School of Performing Arts at Louisiana Tech. I have been Joel Sharpton. You can find me at joelsharpton.com. You can find this show is going to be uh, posted at some later date in an audio-only form at meandthegeekpod.com. Thank you for being our first live audience. Have I mentioned that I love that guy? That's uh, Mark Gwynn, director of the School of Performing Arts for Louisiana Tech University and one of my mentors. I'm so thankful that he was the first in the hot seat in this summer series. As I mentioned in the beginning of the show, we are doing this more throughout the summer. We're going to have an event on July 16th. We're going to have another event on July 30th. And those episodes should show up eventually in your uh, podcast feed as well. But if you're in North Louisiana or South Arkansas or you want to travel to those those places, or you're going to be traveling to those places uh, sometime around those dates, and come and join us Thursday night, uh, the 16th, Thursday night, the 30th. We're going to be live in Stone Theater on the campus of Louisiana Tech for the summer series at the School of Performing Arts. Uh, until next week, I've been me. Uh, you can find me at joelsharpton.com. You can follow me on Twitter at The Rogues Life, and you can just stay tuned next week for another great conversation with a great geek here on Me and the Geek. One, two, three. Me and the Geek is a proud member of the ProCast Network, a ProCreate production. ProCreate is a community of artists in film, music, the digital arts, and fine arts that helps them connect and collaborate on projects. You can find out more at teamprocreate.com. Also, be sure to check out one of our other great shows like Pod on Pod, a weekly review of a different podcast to help you find your new favorite show. Josh and Joel are your hosts as they walk through the wide world of podcasting from comedy to self-help. Josh and Joel listen to it all so you don't have to. This is the sound of a man who unexpectedly fell into cold water and instinctively is trying to swim hard. This is the sound of the cold water shock, making him gasp uncontrollably and breathe in water until he drowns. Whereas this is the sound of a man who fell into cold water and knows how to survive. You have to fight your instinct to swim and just float until the cold water shock has passed and you can control your breathing. This is a safety message from the RNLI. Float to live. Visit respectthewater.com. This is not just bread. This is a delicious M&S sliced loaf. Just one of our range that has been sliced from pound fifteen to 65p. Enriched with vitamin D and fibre, it's great for packed lunches. This is not just value. This is M&S value. Subject to availability excludes franchise stores.